Everyone has a right to be happy. Someone told me that over lunch this week. Everyone has a right to be happy. I'm not sure there could be a better summation of the worldview of our modern Western individualistic culture than that. And yet, if you made such a claim uh, to the vast majority of humans throughout history, I think you'd get a very confused look in return. And even so, there's certainly something right in this idea. Uh, Part of the the DNA of our American culture is found in the words of our Declaration of Independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, amen, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these unalienable, inviolable, unassailable rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So the purpose then of government is to secure these God-given rights. But if we blanketly affirm that everyone has a right to be happy, what are we really trying to communicate with that idea? What do we mean by happy? How is happiness measured? Is it simply being able to gratify our our strongest impulses in any given moment or in any given relationship? And what do we mean by having a right to this? If our notion of happiness depends on how others treat us, do we mean that the, the government should compel others to behave in a certain way so as to not impinge upon our personal private recipe for personal happiness? And where are the lines to be drawn when when your private recipe for personal happiness interferes with my private recipe for personal happiness? How does this work? In the context of my lunch conversation this week, uh, as is so often the case, this claim that everyone has a right to be happy was being used to justify divorce, something that our Creator has declared that He hates. He has not endowed us with the unalienable right to do what he hates, to do what is contrary to his good designs for our lives. So what does it mean to be happy, and what does it mean to have this as a right? Well, I invite you to turn with me to to James chapter 1, verse 13. You can find it on page 229 in the second half of the Pew Bible. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Let us pray. As we come to Your word now, we ask for You to make us wise in the hearing of Your word, that we may know Your plans for us, that we may delight in your good design for our lives. 
Lord, bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, the context of these five verses that I just read are, of course, the preceding 12 verses that we studied last week. Uh, James here is really continuing and, and building upon his discussion of how to face trials. Or more specifically, as, as immediately preceding verse puts it, how to remain steadfast under trial, so that when you have stood the test, you will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. As we noted last week, uh, from the letter, we can discern that most of the Christians to whom James is writing are poor and persecuted. Apparently, uh, they have fled from Jerusalem when the intense persecution broke out against Christians there. Uh, the intense persecution broke out. It began with the murder of a man named Stephen for preaching in the streets. It was then followed by the killing of one of the original 12 apostles, another man named James, the brother of John. The trials being faced by these poor, dispersed, persecuted believers to whom he writes are intense. And the author, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he knows those trials very well. In fact, first century historians record that James himself went on to be stoned to death by his fellow kinsmen in 62 A.D., even before the apostles Paul and Peter were executed by the Roman emperor, each of these three men having stood the test, remaining steadfast in the faith, firm to the end. He knows what he's talking about. And in the first 12 verses, uh, we see a series of principles for how to endure trials. Uh, I, I summarized those principles under, under three headings last week. One, we endure by recognizing that God has a purpose for our trials. God has a purpose for our trials. Second, we endure by turning to God in prayer, seeking spiritual wisdom that only He can give. And third, we endure by setting our gaze upon the glory that is yet to come, recognizing that this world is not our home. Well, those were the three headings from last time. Our passage today, it really continues that list. It provides two more key principles for enduring trials, for remaining steadfast, firm to the end. Our English translations of uh, this passage can, can make it a little difficult to notice the progression of thought, uh, to see how verse 13 builds upon everything that came before it. And that's because of a bit of a, a play on words that exists in the Greek language, but not in the English language. In the Greek language, the same word can be used to mean trial as well as temptation. So the word for trial, in, in, in verse 2, you can look at it, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Well, that's simply the noun form of the same word that appears in verses 13 and 14 as tempted. So context is key to determine, does it mean trial or temptation? Does it mean tried or tempted? And as we think about it, it's, it's not really surprising that the Greek had this feature. With every trial we face comes the temptation, the temptation to sin in one way or another to fail to remain steadfast, the temptation to, to give in to anger over our trials. Whether that anger is directed at our circumstances or at those whom we blame for our circumstances, or more deeply, 
and underneath most of our anger, anger at God, who has allowed our circumstances. The temptation to give in to anger. Or the temptation to give in to depression and despair or anxiety. Bemoaning the futility of pressing on, disbelieving that there is any significance, any purpose in our trials, any purpose to our suffering. Give in to depression or despair or anxiety. Or the temptation to distract ourselves from the suffering, uh, to self-medicate through sinful indulgence of drugs or, or alcohol, excessive godless entertainment, or other sinful vices. The temptation to give in to distraction. Or the temptation to doubt God's power to intervene in our circumstances. Or the temptation to doubt God's wisdom or His goodness for having allowed the trial to come. Trials bring temptation. There's a close connection. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible attempts to clarify the transition between these topics in James's letter uh, in the play on words by translating verse 13 in this way. It says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So in that one verse, in verse 13, we see both of the two additional endurance principles, principles for enduring trials. Uh, you can summarize them as one, do not be deceived about the nature of temptation. And two, do not be deceived about the nature of God. Do not be deceived about the nature of temptation and do not be deceived about the nature of God. When tested with a trial, why would we think to say, I'm being tempted by God? He has to tell us not to do that. Why would we even be tempted to say, I'm being tempted by God? Well, there's a few reasons we might say that. Uh, the first flows from what was implied in verses 2 through 4 and what is made explicit elsewhere in Scripture, namely that, that nothing in life happens outside of the sovereign decree of God. And that God specifically has a purpose in allowing our trials. And part of that purpose is to refine our character, to strengthen our faith, as he talked about in verses 2 through 4. And so given our sinful nature to always be looking for an excuse to sin, we may find ourselves justifying our sin by saying, hey, God's the one who made me like this. I didn't create these desires within my heart to stray from Him. I didn't create the opportunity to gratify these desires. God did. So God must want me to give in to this temptation. If He doesn't want me to give in, well, that's on Him. He's the one who is to blame for making this, me this way and presenting me this opportunity. We actually see this in the very first sin of mankind in the Garden of Eden. Having sinned against God and being called out by God, Adam replies to God with these words. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God says to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the pattern was set. Our natures were hardened to always see it as someone else's fault. 
I'm sure you've heard the saying, when you, when you point the finger at someone else, you've got a big thumb pointed up at God and three fingers pointed back at you. Yes, God is sovereign over our trials. Yes, He can be described as actively testing us in those trials. He can never be described as tempting us to sin, as trying to get us to sin. The testing is designed to lead to greater holiness, not to sinfulness. The testing that he allows is designed to strengthen our faith, to produce steadfastness, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, as James explained in verses 2 through 4. God is, is so pure that he cannot be tempted with evil in any way. There's not even a flicker of evil within him that can be fanned into flame by any temptation. And thus, he's certainly not tempting others to do evil, for that itself would be evil. To question whether God is tempting you is to question whether God is for you or whether he's against you. Beloved, God is always for you. God is not to blame for the allure of sin or our choice to give in. So then who or what is to blame? Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The language of lure and entice is the language of fishing, right? We know that. Where the fisherman draws the fish away from a safe shelter or from a safe course of travel, luring and enticing the fish with bait. If the fish deviates from its course, if it turns to take the bait, well, death is certain. And so it is with temptation to sin. But in the metaphor that James is painting, who is the fisherman? It's not God. That's the point of verse 13. He's not luring and enticing us to sin. Instead, James says the fisherman is who? It's our own desire. Notice that James makes no mention of the devil or spiritual forces of evil. He will acknowledge their presence and their influence upon us later in the letter, chapter 4. But James makes no mention of spiritual forces of evil here in tempting us. Notice that James makes no mention of the world. The world, whether with respect to a sinful culture or broken circumstances. Now, James will acknowledge the, the influence of the world later in the letter. But he makes no mention of the influence of culture or circumstances here. See, it's not ultimately the world or, or the devil that is luring and enticing us to sin. Ultimately, it's our own desire. For without the desire to do something, we wouldn't do it. It's interesting here that James doesn't employ the language that we see elsewhere in the Bible to, to explicitly describe our sinful nature the language of the flesh that we're so familiar with, like we find in Romans 13, 14, where we're commanded, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Same word, the desires of the flesh, our sinful nature. Uh, Galatians 15, 16, we're commanded, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 1 Peter 2.11, abstain from the passions and desires of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Passions of our sinful nature that wage war against our soul. In other places, we read of deceitful desires. 
evil desire, worldly desires, defiling desires. But here, James doesn't use any of those negative descriptors for desire. He simply uses the neutral language of desire. And I I find that instructive. You see, not every desire that can develop into a sinful deed is inherently sinful. Not every desire that develops into sin is inherently sinful. It's not sinful to desire good food and, and drink and other physical pleasures. It's not sinful to desire romantic intimacy with a spouse. It's not sinful to desire relief from pain. It's not sinful to desire punishment for those who perpetrate evil. But those good desires can still lead us astray. Oftentimes, the problem is not that we possess a particular desire, but that a particular desire possesses us. We've allowed the desire to grow to the point that it becomes a demand. No longer just a desire, now it's, it's, it's a man. No longer a want, now it's a, a need. I must have this or else I cannot be content. I must have this or else I cannot be at peace. I must have this or else I cannot be happy. We begin to turn to the object of our desires to get something from them that they can never deliver. True and lasting happiness. It's not found in the things of this world. We turn to people and and to things to get what only God can provide us. And then the object of our desire becomes our master. It, It entraps us. It enslaves us as we give our heart over to it. What do you turn to for comfort when you need comforting in your trials? Be honest with yourself. What are you most tempted to turn to for comfort when you need comfort in your trials? What do you turn to for a sense of purpose in a confusing and dizzying world that seems to make no sense? Where do you turn for purpose? What does your mind tend to drift, drift toward if left undirected? What do you catch yourself thinking about when you should be focused on, on something else? Surely you know that experience. Uh, what, what do you find yourself fantasizing about? Well, as we think through the, the desires of our heart, we begin to see that these are signs of a ruling desire, something that, that controls our thinking, something that we have allowed to become the Lord of our hearts in place of our true Lord. And these ruling desires are often the source of our anger, our depression, our anxiety. Because when that ruling desire that has become Lord of our heart is unmet or or when it's threatened, uh, we respond with anger or anxiety or depression. So that's the first category of of disordered desires. It's good desires that have become bad masters. Good desires that are not inherently evil, but they become bad masters as we've given ourselves over to them. They've grown too large into a demand. That's one category of disordered desires. I'm going to give three. The second category of disordered desires are desires that distort God's good design. Desires that distort God's good design. For example, it's not sinful to desire romantic intimacy with a spouse. If our desire, um, while that's true, if our desire for romantic intimacy gets directed towards someone who is not our spouse and, and we choose to indulge that temptation, even if only in our heart, well, we have just warped and distorted God's good design 
for the gift of romantic intimacy within marriage. Most sexual sin falls into this category of of distorting God's good design, of taking a good gift and distorting it. That's the second category of disordered desires. The third category of disordered desires, the final one, desires that put ourselves in the place of God. Desires that put ourselves in the place of God. This is where our sinful nature most prevalently comes in. In these cases, it's more than a perversion of good desires. It's inherently evil desires. The desire for power and control over others. Power and control over people who have been created by God and for God. This puts you in the place of God. And that's evil. The desire for praise and glory from others for your own sake. Praise and glory from those who have been created by God and for God, for His praise and glory. Well, this puts you in the place of God, and that is evil. And the desire to be independent from God, not to be subject to His demands, not answerable to Him. To determine for yourself what is right and wrong, good and evil, despite having been created by Him and for Him and for His glory. All of these desires, the desire for power and control, the desire for praise and glory, the desire for personal autonomy, what do they all have in common? Power, praise, personal autonomy, they all have in common pride, self-exaltation. And as these inherently sinful, prideful desires consume you, they necessarily lead to hate. Hate for God and hate for others whom you are trying to control. See the hideousness of sin and see its certain end. Verse 15, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James here, he switches the metaphors on us, these interchanging metaphors. Now, he's seemingly describing disordered desires as a woman who who woos us to be her mate. And as soon as we indulge the desire in our heart, in our mind, well, that woman conceives and gives birth to sin, which grows into death. It's reminiscent of the the wisdom language of Proverbs, the the personification of sin in the first nine chapters of Proverbs, where sin is personified as an adulterous woman seducing her prey. It's fitting, verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived about the nature of temptation. There is a real danger that we will fail to remain steadfast under trial. And that danger is not found with outside of us, it's found within us. Not without, but within. We are to blame for our choice to give in to our desire for sin. We are to blame. Not God, not spiritual forces of evil, not the devil, not the culture, not the world, not our circumstances. Not our parents, or our upbringing, or our genetics, or our personalities. No, the problem is us. But we are easily deceived into believing the lie that our greatest happiness can only be found by turning away from God, from His good designs. And thus, part of the the antidote, one of the key endurance principles, is to ensure that we are not deceived about the nature of God. Verse 17, 
Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is who God is. He's the giver of good and perfect gifts. Gifts to be enjoyed as they point us to the goodness of the giver. He is not to blame for our decision to to seek from the gifts that He gives more than they were designed to deliver. Turning to the gifts to get what only can be found from the giver. He's not to blame for our decision to distort and pervert His good gifts and to use them in ways that are contrary to His good designs for those gifts. He is perfectly good. That's the point. He is the, the Father of lights. It's a title uh, which draws our attention to the first gift of His creation, the first creative act recorded in the Bible. Third verse, Genesis 1, verse 3, God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And on it goes with His good gifts, leading to the concluding verse of Genesis chapter 1, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. What He created was good because He is good. And He is just as good today as He was in those first six days of creation. For with Him, there is no variation or shadow due to change over time. He is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. Hebrews 13.8 And despite humanity's rebellion against Him, He persists in showering us with good gifts. Even though He had given them paradise, our our forebears, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, chose to believe the lie that God is not good. They chose to believe the lie that God was somehow holding out on them. That His moral commands were a hindrance to their happiness. That His moral commands were a hindrance to their self-actualization. That His moral commands were a hindrance to living their true self. We have all followed in their path. We have all given in to the lie that our greatest happiness can only be found outside of His good design for our lives. You've probably heard me give the kite metaphor before. A kite that is firmly held by the constraints of the stream is free. It's free to soar in the wind. But if that kite is severed from the constraints placed on it by the stream, what happens? It's tossed to and fro and comes crashing down to its demise. We are the kite. God's moral commands, His good designs for our lives are the string. We are only free to fly as we ought if we are held in place by the constraints of God's good designs, His moral commands, His Word. It's a lie to say that happiness can be found by severing that string. Just consider the latest forms of this lie that have come to dominate our culture in our day, especially during this Pride Month. The lie that the desires of your flesh are inherently and necessarily good That the only thing that's evil in this world is that which threatens to hinder or to otherwise discourage your gratification of those desires. And more than that, the lie that our sexual urges form the very foundation of who we are. 
that our very identity is rooted in these sexual urges that we feel, even if those, de- those desires are contrary to God's revealed design for human flourishing. And rather than compassionately coming alongside people who experience unusually strong urges that are, are contrary to God's natural design, helping them to understand that we are so much more than the sum of our sexual desires, that, that our sexual desires are not foundational to our identity. No, our, our culture, instead of coming alongside hurting people, it tells them that the problem is not with their desires. The problem is with God's design. Or worse, it tells them that the problem is with their physical bodies. That God made a mistake when assigning their biological sex at birth. That, now, that lie, it now extends even beyond sexual desires goes beyond that entirely. Any young person who feels especially awkward in their bodies, the universal experience of all teenagers, any young person who doesn't feel like they quite fit in with their peer group, any young person who struggles with acute anxiety or depression or with the trauma associated with past abuse, well, they are all likewise told that the problem is their biological sex. The answer is the permanent mutilation of that body that God gave them. Our hearts break because we know that that is not the path to greater happiness. Greater happiness comes from embracing who we are in the eyes of the one who made us. Yes, we are all broken as a result of sin, and our desires are disordered. But our good God delights to give good gifts, and He is at work to fix what is broken within us. He is at work to set right what is disordered. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Oh, it will be healing to your flesh. It will be refreshment to your bones. The answer to our inner distress is not to let our sin define us. It is not to try to remake our bodies around our disordered desires. The answer is to receive God's greatest gift, the gift of new birth. God is a good Father who gives good gifts, even and especially the new birth. Verse 18. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So while sin brings forth death, verse 14, the Father brings forth life. And he does so through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Four times in the New Testament, this phrase that James uses, the word of truth, is explicitly used to refer to the gospel by which God brings people from spiritual death to spiritual and eternal life. And notice that the new birth that James begins to talk about here and continues throughout the rest of the chapter, the new birth is entirely God's doing. It's not our own. It's by His will that He brought us forth. And notice that the the new birth is more than just the forgiveness of our sins. It's the remaking of us into something new. To the first fruits of His new creation. The new heavens and the new earth that will never fade away. The new birth 
is the work of spiritual regeneration in which our disordered desires are gradually aligned with His perfect good design for us. We are increasingly discover our true self as we are further conformed to the image of the only perfect human being, Jesus Christ, who took on the weakness of human flesh. But unlike us, He refused to ever give in to any temptation to sin. Even when faced with the horrors of death by crucifixion in perfect obedience, He suffered and died the death that we deserve for our sins. And He rose from the grave in victory over sin and death and temptation and disordered desires so that all who place their trust in Him for the forgiveness of their sins are given new spiritual birth and the promise of eternal life. And those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, who have experienced the goodness of God and the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing the necessity of the new birth for all people, will we unashamedly proclaim this gospel of happiness to everyone that we can get to listen, no matter how upset it makes them. For everyone has just as much of a right to be happy as we do. And Jesus is the only source of true and lasting happiness. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us, your word of truth by which we are saved and by which we are made new, remade into the image of our Savior. Help us to see the nature of temptation rightly. Help us to see your nature, your goodness rightly that we may more fully experience the happiness that only comes from knowing and serving and loving you. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.